Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear a talk from Peter Lightheart titled, From Silence to Song, The Transformation of Old Testament Worship, from our audio collection titled, The Other Day, The Music Died. Let's begin with prayer. Father, as we look at your word this afternoon, we pray for your spirit to guide us. We pray that you would help us to better know you and to know your will uh, for our worship of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Every now and then at a conference like this, something happens that makes it look like the conference has been planned. Uh, But those of us who are part of it know much better than that. This is one of those moments. Uh, It was planned by somebody, but not by us. We've just finished singing Psalm 5, and without ducks knowing it, I had intended to start with the first seven verses of Psalm 5, which is a Psalm of David, according to the title. And the first seven verses read, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to thee do I pray. In the morning, O Lord, thou wilt hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to thee and eagerly watch. For thou art not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, no evil dwells with thee. The boastful shall not stand before thine eyes. Thou dost hate all who do iniquity. Thou dost destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by thine abundant loving kindness, I will enter thy house. At thy holy temple, I will bow in reverence for thee. Anybody notice anything strange in those first seven verses of Psalm 5? And I'm thinking particularly of verse 7. This is, according to to the title, a Psalm of David. And yet he speaks of going into the house of God and bowing down in reverence in the temple. But we know from other passages of the Old Testament uh, that David did not build a temple. And he had wanted to build a temple, but it was specifically forbidden that he build a temple. The Lord told him he couldn't. And yet here we have one of many psalms, which are uh, titled as Psalms of David, where David is saying he's going to go into the Lord's temple and he's going to worship the Lord in his house or in his temple. Uh, This kind of uh, problem is easier to handle if you're a liberal, because you can always say, well, it's not really a psalm of David. It's some later writer who actually knew about a temple who's projecting back into David's time and thinking of, uh, uh, thinking of himself in David's position, and he just kind of forgot that David didn't have a temple to go into. I think the titles of the Psalms are part of the original text of the Psalm and therefore inspired and infallible as the Psalms themselves are, and therefore we're left with a question. What is David going into? Where is he going to bow in reverence before the Lord? What is he talking about? when he talks about the temple. That question is, I hope, will be answered during the course of this lecture, and we might have to overlap till tomorrow to finish up what we're saying here. I think it will become clear as we go through what kind of uh, structure or what kind of thing David is talking about here. Uh, Remember, uh, if you will, yesterday we talked about the uh, differences between approaching Christian worship through the model of the synagogue or through the model of the temple. And I suggested yesterday that that's a false kind of dichotomy because the temple and the synagogue are not radically distinct. They're not sharply distinct institutions in the worship that went on there, although the actions of the worship was quite different. They were understood to be uh, parallel, at least, and different forms of the same kind of worship at most. But I ended yesterday by suggesting that we don't have to make a choice between synagogue and temple for another reason. Uh, it's not just because the, the two institutions, the two forms of worship overlap a good deal, but also because the uh, Bible gives us a, an alternative to both. Uh, it gives us a model of worship that is neither the temple nor the synagogue, and it's a model that we have a great deal of information about in the Old Testament, and this information is extremely relevant to the, to the worship of the Christian church and specifically to the issues uh, before us at this conference, the uh, questions of music in worship. So I'm going to begin presenting today, and I'll continue till tomorrow, I'm presenting a third way. We don't have to choose between the synagogue and the temple because there is another alternative 
uh, there's another model that we can follow. In order to get to that, I want to trace something of the history of the Old Testament sanctuaries. Uh, and this will be quite brief. And I want to trace it under the heading of From Silence to Song, which is the uh, title of this lecture. And that description, From Silence to Song, describes the transition from uh, the, the Mosaic Tabernacle and the worship of the Mosaic Tabernacle to another form of worship that comes into being uh, at the time of David. From what we can tell in the Pentateuch, the worship of the tabernacle took place in almost complete silence. Uh, that is, silence from human beings. We can imagine that as animals were being slaughtered, they, they were making noises. Uh, but there is no sign of music or song, no instruments that were involved in the worship of the tabernacle, other than uh, silver, um, silver trumpets, which were commanded in Numbers chapter 10, and those trumpets were used only to uh, gather the people to announce the convocations and assemblies of Israel. They were used at the beginning of the, uh, the seventh month, which began with what's called the Feast of Trumpets. But once those trumpets had sounded and gathered the people together, then the trumpets had no further use in the worship at the tabernacle. They were just for, it was like a call to worship. It was not something that accompanied, the music, uh, accompanied worship in any way at the tabernacle. Uh, there's uh, perhaps some hint of song of some sort in Deuteronomy when it talks about uh, the people of God coming to the central sanctuary to eat and drink and rejoice before the Lord. It doesn't say sing, but it does say rejoice, and perhaps that involves singing. But that's as close as we get to any evidence that there was song at the tabernacle worship, in the tabernacle worship. It's not only music that's lacking, but in fact, if we go strictly by what we have in the Pentateuch, Virtually nothing was said by the worshipers or by the priests who were assisting the worshipers in their sacrificial worship. We know from Leviticus 16 that when the high priest uh, uh, sent off the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, he confessed the sins of Israel on the head of the scapegoat. So we do know that there was some speaking at that point. But other than that, I don't believe there's any indication, explicit indication, that anything was ever said in the tabernacle worship. It's not said in Leviticus 1 through 6, which are describing the, um, the worship, the sacrifice, the main sacrifices of tabernacle worship. It doesn't say that when a worshiper brings the animal in for sacrifice, that he lays his hand on the head of the animal and confesses his sin. We can kind of guess that that would have happened. It makes sense that that would have happened, but it's not told. In, we're not told that in the text itself. As far as we know, again, uh, the, the worship of the tabernacle took place in utter silence. Uh, or there was a little bit of speaking, but not much. There was no song, or there was song only at feasts, uh, if, if at all. Uh, but by and large, it took place in silence. And certainly music and speech are not emphasized in the worship of the tabernacle. And this sort of worship continued in Israel until the period uh, of the judges came to an end. The Mosaic tabernacle and the system of worship that existed there really come to an end, comes to an end early in the books of Samuel. Uh, the uh, tabernacle was set up at Shiloh after the conquest. We're told in Joshua 18 that the tabernacle was established at Shiloh, and it was in Shiloh throughout the period of the judges. But then at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we find that that Shiloh sanctuary is attacked by the Philistines, and it's destroyed in the, what's called the Battle of Aphek, which is described in 1 Samuel 4. That's the battle where the Philistines attack. They capture the Ark of the Covenant, and they take the Ark of the Covenant out of the land, and it stays for a number of months in the, the land of Philistia until the Philistines uh, can't handle the plagues that the Lord is bringing on them on account of the Ark being in their presence. And so they send it back. But when they send it back, Israel receives it, but they never put it back into the Mosaic Tabernacle. The Mosaic uh, worship system, the Mosaic Tabernacle system, is never reassembled after the Battle of Aphek. In uh, 1 Samuel 7, verses 1 and 2, this is the uh, statement after the ark has been returned from the land of Philistia. It says, The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came about from that day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That 20-year period is uh, from the time that it arrives in the house of Abinadab on the hill 
until the next series of events. That's not the whole time that the, that the ark is uh, in the house of Abinadab on the hill. We know that from 2 Samuel 6, verse 3. This is the story of David bringing the ark up from that location and bringing it into uh, the city of David in Jerusalem. It says they placed, this is 2 Samuel 6, 3, they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. It was not, it's more than 20 years between the time it gets to the house of Abinadab on the hill and the time it leaves the house of Abinadab on the hill. You've got the 20 years between its arrival there and the battle of Ebenezer, which follows in 1 Samuel 7. Then you have the whole reign of Saul, and the ark is still in the house of Abinadab on a hill. You've got the first seven years of David's reign, and the ark is still in the house of Abinadab on a hill. And finally, when David becomes king over all Israel, he brings the ark up from the house of Abinadab on a hill into Jerusalem. So for the better part of a century, the ark is uh, residing in a private home. Meanwhile, the tabernacle, the rest of the mosaic system, is moving around the countryside in various places. It, it left Shiloh at some point. We don't know exactly when. But it left Shiloh and ended up in Nob. In 1 Samuel 21, David goes and to the priests who live at Nob and he asks for showbread. Uh, the fact that there's showbread there and the fact that they had just changed the showbread and he's getting the old showbread means that they still have some kind of modified uh, tabernacle system going there. But it's not the full tabernacle system because the ark isn't there. Uh, it's a... It's a tabernacle with a vacant holy of holies in Nob. Later on, we find that the, uh, uh, the tabernacle is in Gibeon in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 3. I'll read the first three verses of 2 Chronicles 1. It says, Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges, and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the fathers' households. And then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which was at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. There's a couple other references in Chronicles to the fact that the tabernacle, without the ark still, was, on, uh, was in Gibeon. Uh, Gibeon is a city in Benjamite territory, and my suspicion, although it's uh, not uh, said explicitly in, in Samuel, but my suspicion is that Saul put it there, intending to make that the center of his kingdom. Uh, it was a, a Benjamite city. It was one of the major cities in the Benjamite territory. So we have, after the Battle of Aphek, we have a long period of time when the Ark is uh, not inside the Mosaic Tabernacle. The Mosaic Tabernacle and the Ark are in separate places, uh, and you don't have the Mosaic tabernacle system functioning as it was supposed to. One of the ritual implications of this, of course, is they, they can't do the Day of Atonement. Or if they do a Day of Atonement, they're not, it's not clear what they're sprinkling when they go into the most holy place. There's nothing there when the, ar when the tabernacle is at Nob and later what's, when it's at Gibeon. You have an empty Holy of Holies. That's the death of the Mosaic tabernacle. The Mosaic tabernacle was constructed as the Lord's house, the Lord's tent in Israel, so that when Israel moved from place to place, the tent of their king, the Lord, would go with them. And wherever they settled in the wilderness and then later in the land, the Lord would have his house, his place uh, to, uh, to dwell, uh, and he would be enthroned above the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, when you take the Ark out of the tabernacle, it loses much of its purpose for existence. It loses its reason for being at all. Uh, the Battle of Aphek is the death of the Mosaic tabernacle. The story that, goes, that continues into the books of Kings shows us the resurrection of the Mosaic tabernacle, but it's a resurrection unto glory. It's raised up in the form of a temple. Uh, the Mosaic system is never put back together, but you have uh, a temple built by Solomon. But that's between those two points, between the time that the uh, Mosaic system falls apart, the Mosaic system dies, and the time it rises again in a transfigured way, uh, in the temple system that Solomon builds, you have a period, the, the reign of David, when you have an alternative system uh, operating. David institutes a different sort of worship uh, when he brings the ark up into Jerusalem 
and uh, places it in the city of David on Mount Zion. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 17 tells us that they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. This is a tent on Zion. This is a tent in Jerusalem. And it's one that David pitches specifically for the ark. But this is not the Mosaic Tabernacle. The Mosaic Tabernacle at this time, as far as we can tell, was in Gibeon. It's in Gibeon at the beginning of Solomon's reign. But David sets up a tent and puts the ark in it in Jerusalem at Mount Zion. And so far as we can tell, this, uh, in fact, this is, this is the case, that these two systems, the taber tabernacle system of Moses, which is, on Mount, is, which is in Gibeon, and the tabernacle of David, which is on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, are existing side by side, not literally side by side, but are both existing simultaneously throughout the reign of David. As long as he's reigning in Jerusalem, you have a tabernacle of David in, on Zion, and you have a ta the tabernacle of Moses still functioning uh, without the ark uh, in Gibeon. First Chronicles 16 is a passage that indicates this uh, division clearly. This is the chronicler's account of the beginnings uh, or the pitching of um, the tent and the beginning of the worship that takes place at the tabernacle of David. First Chronicles 16, beginning with verse 1. So they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he distributed to everyone, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a raisin cake. And he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, and second to him Zechariah, then Jael, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, Jael, with musical instruments, harps, lyres. Also Asaph played loud-sounding cymbals. And Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, blew trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. This is a radically different form of worship that's taking place before the Ark. It's radically different from anything that happened ever with the Mosaic Tabernacle. There are sacrifices offered here, but the emphasis certainly is on praise. And it's praise in song, and it's praise through musical instruments. These were not used at all at the Tabernacle of Moses. The Tabernacle of Moses continues to operate. If you skip down to the end of chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles, you'll find this division of labor set up. David left Asaph, this is verse 37, David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark continually as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 relatives, Obed-Edom also the son of Jeduthun and Hosa as gatekeepers, he left Zadok the priest and his brothers, the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place which was at Gibeon. That's the tabernacle of Moses. Zadok the priest, the descendant of Aaron, is in charge of the ministry and the worship there. And the ministry goes on very much as it had in the past, beginning verse 40. Uh, Zadok is there to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar, burnt offering continually, morning and evening, even according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel. And with them were Heman and Jeduthun and the rest who were chosen, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord, because his loving kindness is everlasting. And with them were Heman and Jeduthun with trumpets and cymbals for those who should sound loud, and with instruments for the songs of God, the sons of Jeduthun for the gate. Then all the people departed, each to his house, and David returned to bless the people. That's a description of the worship, the new worship that takes place at the Mosaic Tabernacle, which is, itself is transformed. It is worship in sacrifice, burnt offerings, continual burnt offerings, according to 1 Chronicles 16.40, but it's also in, uh, a worship that involves music and the playing of musical instruments. That's introduced into the worship in Gibeon, which is the worship at the tabernacle of Moses. But throughout, uh, throughout David's reign, we have these two separate sanctuaries set up. One of them, the tabernacle of Moses, where you have continuing sacrifice and continuing, uh, as well as music introduced, and the tabernacle of David, where you have music, and I believe music alone, as the main 
way of offering and uh, of sacrifice before the Lord uh, in Zion at Jerusalem. Before the Ark of God, uh, apart from this dedication ceremony, uh, I don't believe that any burnt offerings or any bloody offerings were sacrificed uh, at, at that place. You have a worship that is non-sacrificial, that is, it's non-bloody sacrifice at the tabernacle of David. Let me, uh, let me defend that proposition because we do have uh, 1 Chronicles 16, uh, verse, the first three verses tell us that when David put the ark into the, into the tent, there were burnt offerings and peace offerings that were offered. My uh, conclusion has been is that uh, those were offered for the sake of dedicating that place, and they were not continuing after that dedication ceremony. Uh, in other words, the sacrifice just on that day, and then for the rest of the time, the worship at the tabernacle of David is a worship that's purely a worship in song and in musical instruments. My reason for saying that, my reasons for saying that are twofold. Uh, first of all, we're, uh, chapter 16 of First Chronicles gives us a, a pretty clear division of labor between those who are working, laboring at the tabernacle of David and those who are laboring at the tabernacle of Moses. Uh, the instructions that are given, the appointment that's given to those who work at the tabernacle of David is to celebrate, thank, and praise, the God, praise God and to play musical instruments. That's in First Chronicles 16, 4, and 5. They're appointed specifically for that task at the tabernacle of David before the ark. When we get to the end of the chapter and the Zadok the priest and his brothers, are their, their duties are described. Their duties are described as offering burnt offerings uh, and uh, continuing the worship that had gone on for centuries at the tabernacle of Moses. So we have, within the text itself, we have a division of labor. Certain officials do one thing, sing and praise God at the tabernacle of David. The priests under Zadok do something else. They continue the sacrificial worship uh, of the Mosaic tabernacle. My second reason for saying that there were no more sacrifices at the tabernacle of David is because uh, the, the people in charge of the tabernacle of David are Levites. They are not priests. And therefore, they can't actually perform the sacrificial rites that are prescribed by the Mosaic law. Only priests can approach the altar. Levites cannot. Priests, of course, are from the tribe of Levi, but priests are specifically descended from Aaron, and only descendants of Aaron, and then later within the descendants of Aaron, only descendants of Zadok are allowed to function as priests. Only they can approach the altar. Only they can, uh, as Leviticus 21 puts it, only they can offer the bread of God on his table. Uh, that's a priestly function. If you have a bunch of Levites in front of the tabernacle of David, uh, then they can't sacrifice because they're not priests. Uh, and related to that, we also have the uh, phenomenon of the central sanctuary introduced here uh, with the tabernacle of Moses making its way to Gibeon and being set up and the worship going on there. Uh, that would be the one place where sacrificial worship would take place, not on Zion, but on Gibeon. So we have a division of labor going on in the, in the reign of David. We have one worship form that is, focuses, focuses on and I think is exclusively a worship in praise and in music. Uh, and then uh, in another part of the country, you have worship that is sacrificial. First Chronicles 25 fills out the, uh, the details of the worship that takes place on uh, Zion at the Tabernacle of David. And I'm going to spend some time looking at the details of this. A lot of this material didn't get into your notes because um, I've been working on it since the notes were produced. Up until this morning, in fact. 1 Chronicles 25. I'll read uh, down through verse 8, and then after verse 8, it's all a list of names, and I've already tangled myself up enough in Hebrew names for one week. There's plenty in verses 1 through 8 to, to make me stumble. Uh, it says, Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals, and the number of those who performed their service was, of the sons of Asaph, Zachar, Joseph, Nethaniah, Asherelah, the sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph who prophesied under the direction of the king. Of Jeduthun, the son of, sons of Jeduthun, Gedaliah, Zeri, Jeshiah, Shimei, Hashabiah, and Mattathiah, six, under the hands of their father Jeduthun, Jeduthun with the harp, who prophesied in giving thanks and praising the Lord. Of Heman, the sons of Heman, 
Rukiah, Mataniah, Uziel, Shibuel, and Yeramoth, Hananiah, Hanani, Eliatha, Gidalti, Romamti Ezer, Joshbekasha, Malothi, Hothir, Mahazioth. All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, to exalt him according to the words of God, for God gave 14 sons and three daughters to Heman. All these were under the hands of their father to sing in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman were under the hands of the king and their number who were trained in singing to the Lord with their relatives. All who were skillful was 288. And they cast lots for their duties, all alike, the small as well as the great, the teacher as well as the pupil. And then it lists who got which lot up until the number 24. 24 lots, of, lots are cast, and the names of the heads of each of the 24 groups of uh, Levites of the Levitical choir and orchestra are named. This is a passage in, verse, in chapter 25 is part of a larger section where, uh, where the, the chronicler is dealing with the reorganization of the priesthood as a whole. That begins in chapter 23, uh, and David specifically uh, says in, in chapter 23, verse 25, that the rationale for reorganizing the priesthood at this time and reorganizing the Levites is because the circumstances of Israel have changed. Uh, this is First Chronicles 23, 25. The Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people, he said. He dwells in Jerusalem forever, and also the Levites will no longer need to carry the tabernacle and all its utensils for his ser its service. That was the main function of the Levites uh, under the tabernacle system, under the Mosaic tabernacle system. Their work was physical labor, disassembling the tabernacle and then picking up parts of it and carrying it to the next location. But now that the tabernacle is at rest, there's no need for that kind of work and so they're being reorganized. The priests are also being reorganized. In chapter 24, we have uh, the development of a, of, a, of a course of 24, or a cycle of 24 different priestly families. Each of, one is ruled over, each of which is ruled over by a chief priest, and those priests are on a rotation system, so at any one time at the temple, you'd have one of those 24 courses of priests ministering here, in this case, during David's reign, it would be ministering in the tabernacle of, of of Moses, later these 24 courses of priests would minister in the sacrificial worship of the temple. Uh, so we have a reorganization of priesthood. We have a change of priesthood here, to use the language of the book of Hebrews. And chapter 25, within that context, is a description of the uh, change, one of the changes that takes place in the uh, ministry of the Levites. David, it says, uh, sets apart uh, the Levites for this service along with the commanders of the army. Uh, and that's an interesting turn of phrase. Uh, what are the commanders of the army doing uh, organizing the Levites? What do they have to do with this? Uh, the, the phrase actually could mean uh, something like the princes or the officials of the host. Uh, the, uh, the word for commander or official here has already has been used in the previous chapter in 1 Chronicles 24.5, where it describes the officers of the sanctuary and the officers of God. So the word doesn't necessarily carry the connotation of a military commander, somebody who's in charge of a regiment or uh, a division of the army, but it could mean simply somebody who is an officer, somebody who's a prince in charge of the hosts. That's the word for army there. But hosts also is a word that can have something other than a military connotation. Sometimes it does have a military connotation, but in many cases it just describes Israel as a host, as a great multitude, or even the angels as a great multitude. So my, um, my uh, conclusion is that David is not actually drawing on the uh, commanders of the army. He's not talking to his generals about this, but he's talking to the officials of the hosts. In other words, those who are in charge of uh, the worship, uh, in other words, the, the, the leading Levites and priests. That's the reference of that phrase. But the sense of the phrase, the military language uh, that, that's, or the military connotations that that language can have, is significant. Uh, David is organizing, in a sense, a military force when he organizes the Levites as a, uh, as a choir and as an orchestra. Uh, it has, the, the phrase doesn't necessarily, re, I'm saying it doesn't refer to uh, military commanders, but it has that connotation. Uh, and I think that that has a number of implications for what David is doing here. Uh, we find in other passages of Chronicles, Second Chronicles 20, in particular, that the music and the singing of the Levitical choir was a weapon and was a means of combating Israel's enemies. That's the story of Jehoshaphat 
when he goes out to fight against the Ammonites and the Moabites, uh, and he takes the choir with him. The choir is in front of the army as they go out to the battlefield, and while the choir is singing, the Lord routs the Moabites and the Ammonites. So the choir is actually a military force in the sense that it is fighting the Lord's battles. It is exalting the Lord in praise, and when the Lord is exalted in praise, he becomes a terror to his enemies. The other suggestion, uh, the other reason why this uh, kind of military sounding phrase might be used uh, is because the kind of organization and discipline that the choir is put under is a military-like discipline. Uh, those of you who are in the NSA or the church, Christ Church Choir, uh, Duck is listening to this, and I've just said that the uh, discipline of a choir should be military-like. Uh, it's well-organized, there is training involved, uh, there is hard work involved, there is discipline involved. All of that, I think, is it's, it's clear in the way that the uh, choir is organized, but it's also uh, suggested by that phrase, commanders of the army. David is organizing uh, the forces of Israel for, mili uh, for militant song, you could say, and he's also organizing them as a disciplined force. The organization is elaborately described here. It's basically divided into three sections uh, under the three uh, Levites, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, who are mentioned there in chapter 25, verse 1. Uh, throughout the history of uh, the Mosaic Tabernacle, you had Levites divided up according to the sons of Levi. You had a threefold division of the Levites, and you have a, a similar threefold division uh, here with the Levitical choir. Those are the heads of the Levitical choir and the Levitical orchestra, and each of them uh, has sons who are also part of, that form kind of a second tier of, um, a second tier of leadership of the Levitical uh, musical ministry. You have the three guys, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun at the top, and then the sons of Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman constitute a, a body of 24, and those are the 24 who become the heads of the uh, groups that are listed in verses 9 through 31, those 24 sons of those three Levites. So you have a very highly structured hierarchical system, all of it under the hands of the king, it says, under the hands of David, but then uh, that's distributed in several tiers with three guys at the top, 24 guys in the next tier, and then uh, 12 under each of those 24 guys, uh, making a total of 288 uh, that are listed, that are mentioned here. But that does not constitute the whole Levitical choir. Uh, we're told at the beginning of 1 Chronicles 23 that there were 38,000 Levites total. Verse 4 says, uh, 1 Chronicles 23, 4, of these, of the 38,000, 24,000 were to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. That is their uh, designated to assist the priests, and during David's reign, they would be assisting the priests in the worship at the uh, tabernacle of Moses. 6,000 were officials and judges, 4,000 were gatekeepers, and 4,000 were praising the Lord with the instruments which David made for giving praise. So underneath these 288, uh, you have uh, 4,000 total number of uh, ministers of music involved uh, in, uh, in, the, in the worship that's taking place at the tabernacle of David. They're not only organized in this hierarchical fashion, but they're also organized in the sense of being trained for their task, being given instruction. Uh, you have the phrase, under the hands of, repeated several times in this passage in verse 2. Uh, the sons of Asaph prophesied under the, hands of the, uh, under the hands of Asaph, and he prophesied under the hands of the king. Uh, verse 3, you have another uh, use of that phrase, uh, sometimes translated direction under the direction of, but the literal uh, translation is under the hands of. Uh, the sons of Jeduthun are under the hands of their father. The sons of Heman in verse 6 under the, are under the hands of their father. Uh, this uh, suggests responsibility for the, those who are under them. It suggests training and guidance and instruction. And we have an explicit statement in verse 7 that there were 288, uh, the, in, split up into 12, 24 groups of 12, those 288 are said to be trained in singing with their relatives, and they are skillful. These are not people who just uh, go and uh, uh, you know, pick, up, pick up their instruments when worship begins, haven't looked at it for the past week. These are people who are trained, uh, people who are uh, disciplined in the labor that they have before them. Uh, in an earlier chapter, in chapter 16, 15, rather, verses 22 and 27, 
we have reference to Chenaniah, who is the chief of the Levites, and he's in charge of singing. He gives instruction in singing because he was skillful. And that's in 1 Chronicles 15.22. So uh, Kenaniah uh, is, or Chenaniah is designated as the chief instructor in music and in singing because he is skillful. We can also, that's not specifically said here, we can also infer from this that the choir that David sets up here is supported at, in a full-time ministry of music. The Levites as a whole, we know from, uh, from the book of Numbers, were supported by the tithes of the people of God, of the people of Israel, uh, and uh, they were supported in their manual labor uh, of disassembling and reconstructing the tabernacle uh, during its time in the wilderness. The tithes of the uh, Lord's people went to support that work. And uh, we know from Nehemiah that at least after the post-exilic period, the same thing is true for the Levitical choir. The people in uh, the post-exilic period in the book of Deuteronomy commit themselves to supporting the work of the temple, the rebuilt temple that they have established. And they, uh, uh, that includes uh, ministers of music, the Levitical choir and orchestra that David had set up. Well, we know that these, these uh, uh, Levites are designated for singing and for playing instruments, but can we, uh, is there any other uh, insight we can get into what they're doing? Uh, we're told that they are given a labor. They're set apart for service uh, in verse 1 of chapter 25, and the word there for service is the same Hebrew word, abodah, that's used throughout the Pentateuch to describe the, the manual labor of the Levites, the disassembling and reconstruction of the tabernacle. Uh, and now they're given a different sort of labor, but it's uh, the same word is being used. It is considered uh, a kind of labor to perform music before the ark of the Lord. More than that, we're told back in chapter 16 that they were to sing continuously before the Lord. Uh, verse 16, this is uh, in the aftermath of the dedication of the tabernacle of David. Uh, Benai and Jehaziel, the priests, blew trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. We don't know how long that went on. <laughs> but in verse 37, it says, He left Asaph and his relatives there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark continually as every day's work required. The same uh, description is given to the burnt offering in Exodus 29. The burnt offering was to be continuously burning on the altar burnt offering in the Mosaic Tabernacle. And the lamps that were inside the holy place of the Mosaic Tabernacle were also to be burning continuously. And here we have singers singing continuously. And I, I, uh, I believe that means around the clock. You have, a, you have a, uh, a cycle of 24 groups of Levites. Uh, they would go for probably a two-week period. I'm not sure that we have a, a, an explicit description of how this was set up, but it uh, this is uh, my best guess, is that they would go in for a two-week period, uh, 12, 12 of them and their subordinates would go in, and they would spend the entire week singing before the Lord uh, at the Tabernacle of David. This would be, of course, in shifts. You wouldn't have uh, 12 guys singing 24 hours a day for two weeks, uh, and you wouldn't have the same people there all the time. They'd go in for two weeks at a time, and then the person, the group with the next lot would go in, and they would spend two weeks there. That would take care of 48 weeks of the year, uh, and leave the four weeks that uh, would be covered by the, the great feasts of Israel when probably all of the Levitical choir would be present uh, in Jerusalem. So you have continuous singing uh, before the Ark of the Covenant. That's the way that the uh, work of the... Well, I should make one final comment. Uh, in chapter 25 of First Chronicles, a couple of times we read that these Levites prophesy with harps, lyres, and cymbals, and verse 3 says that they prophesy in giving thanks and praising the Lord. Um, what, in what sense are they prophesying? Uh, the older commentators uh, that, I, that I looked at uh, suggested that this, this is referring to the fact that they're singing psalms that have a prophetic dimension to them that were written by prophets. Uh, others suggested that they're singing and praising the Lord, but they're also seeking to edify the people and they're engaged in prophecy in that sense, and another suggestion that's made is that they are uh, singing and praising the Lord in the power of the Spirit, and so in some way this is a prophetic ministry because it is a ministry in the Spirit. Um, 
I, su I suspect there's something more to it than that, but I don't have a, any better answer to that, than that. So, uh, but I'll, I just put that out because that, that's kind of a striking way to describe the ministry of the Levites at the, at the Tabernacle of David. Throughout David's reign, you have these two separate systems operating, a sacrificial worship that's taking place at the Tabernacle of Moses, a non-sacrificial musical worship that's taking place at the Tabernacle of David. And when Solomon builds the temple, you have these two forms of worship united. In Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 5, we're told, uh, they, that is, uh, the elders of Israel and the Levites, they brought up the ark, and the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels which were in the tent, the Levitical priests brought them up. Now, if they're bringing up the ark, they're bringing it up from the tabernacle of David on Zion. If they're bringing up the tent of meeting, that's the tent of meeting from, uh, the, from Gibeon, that's the mosaic tent of meeting, the mosaic tabernacle, uh, and the holy utensils that are described there are all the, the, the furniture and the utensils that were used in the, uh, in the uh, worship of the Mosaic Tabernacle. So Solomon is combining the two uh, in the worship of the temple. But the musical worship that was introduced by David uh, continues into the temple. Second uh, Chronicles 5, verses 11 and following, we read this. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves with regard, without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, and lyres standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. In unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice, to praise and to glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting, then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So at the dedication of the temple, you again have uh, musical worship going on, musical worship in song, and also celebrating with musical instruments. That's the Tabernacle of David, a different sort of system, a different sort of worship. It's not, uh, a, a, it's not the kind of worship we expect in the Old Testament. It's musical worship. It's worship uh, sim much, more, much similar, much like the worship that we engage in in the New Covenant. Uh, before I finish today, I want to point out a couple of theological perspectives on all this uh, that will lead us into uh, tomorrow afternoon's talk, which will be seeking to apply this and see how much of this can be brought into New Covenant worship. Uh, the, uh, the, t the Davidic system of worship, that is the Levitical choir and Levitical orchestra, uh, is mentioned a number of times in the books of Chronicles. Uh, in one passage, it's uh, where it's mentioned is in and one passage where it's mentioned is in Second Chronicles 29, uh, where we have the description of the rededication of the temple under King Hezekiah. And after he has cleansed the whole temple, then uh, he offers sacrifice. And in verse 25, it says he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet where the command was from the Lord through his prophets, and the Levites stood with the musical instruments of David, the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, and the, trumpets and the trumpets sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all, the all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. There you see a couple of references to Hezekiah following the commands of David in having a choir accompany the offering of sacrifice. Here the two are combined, you see. They're offering animals as sacrifices, but you also have the Levitical choir offering musical sacrifice. But it's also interesting to note in this passage where the music occurs. Where do they start singing? The service that's described here is, is, uh, uh, follows a sequence that's very common in Old Testament worship, a sequence of sacrifices. There are burnt offerings going on at every stage of this sequence. But if you discount the burnt offerings uh, from the first and last stage, you have the sequence of sin offerings, then burnt offerings, and then peace offerings. The sin offerings, uh, there are seven goats that are brought for sin offerings according to verses 20 through 24. And then you have 
just burnt offerings and nothing else in verses 25 to 28, which I just read. And then following the burnt offerings, uh, Hezekiah commands that everyone come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. That's in verse 31. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the word sacrifice almost always refers to peace offerings. Not We use the word sacrifice to refer to all kinds of offerings. But in the Old Testament, sacrifice referred specifically to an offering that led to a meal. That's what the peace offering was. And that's what Hezekiah is referring to here. And the thank offering that he also refers to is another sort of peace offering, uh, according to Leviticus 7. So we have this sequence in the worship service that's the dedication, the rededication of the temple follows the sequence of sin offerings along with burnt offerings, then just burnt offerings, and then peace offerings also along with burnt offerings. That sequence from sin offering to burnt offering to peace offering uh, is a very common sequence in Old Testament worship. And it makes a lot of liturgical and theological sense for Israel to follow that sequence. The sin offering is an offering mainly for cleansing. Uh, it cleanses the worshiper in the house. Uh, the burnt offering is an offering of consecration. The whole animal is placed on the altar and ascends to the Lord in smoke uh, as a sign that the, whole worship, the worshiper is dedicating his, his whole self to the Lord's service. And then the peace offering is a communion meal. That's the order of worship in, old, uh, in the Old Testament. That's the order of worship here. They go from, go from cleansing to consecration to communion. Where does the music come in in that sequence? The music is, does not accompany the sin offering. Verses 20 through 24, you have a sin offering, uh, seven goats for sin offerings that are used to cleanse the altar and to cleanse the house. But there's no music, a musical accompaniment. There's no, uh, there is no uh, song and there are no instruments playing. But once the burnt offering begins to, begins to be offered, the musical instruments begin the Levites sing, and as long as the burnt offering is burning, the people are singing. Once the burnt offering is done, the people stop singing. You have a clear association of song with the burnt offering. Uh, the music of the Levites, their singing and their, um, and their instrumental music, is a, uh, is a form of burnt offering, I would suggest. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a burnt offering in music. That is, it represents the worshiper's entire commitment to the Lord through his offering of song. And if you look at passages in the Psalms, you occasionally see this association between music and song and a burnt offering. Uh, Psalm 92, verses 1 through 4, I think is one place where he speaks of, uh, the psalmist speaks of uh, praising God morning and evening, and the language there suggests the morning and evening sacrifices of burnt offerings that took place every day in Israel. But in other places, we have a song associated with sacrifice, which would be a peace offering. Uh, which uh, uh, a, a communion offering, a communion meal. Psalm 27, 6, uh, Psalm 107, 21, and 22, uh, Psalm 116, 17 are all psalm passages where uh, thanksgiving is described in terms of sacrifice, not a burnt offering, but a sacrifice. So we have in the Old Testament, we have singing associated both with the consecration of the worshipers, that is the burnt offering portion of worship, and it's also associated with the communion meal, that is the, the, uh, the peace offering portion of the worship. Where we don't find music is with the sin offering. Uh, this, again, makes uh, it, it's very commonsensical because the sin offering is, a, is an offering of confession and cleansing. Uh, it's, an, it's not an offering of celebration. The celebration begins once you've been cleansed. And I'm going to suggest uh, in more detail tomorrow that this is, provides a pattern for Christian worship where uh, that we should have a season of praise, a burnt offering in music uh, at the time of the, uh, or after the absolution, the confession and absolution. Once we're cleansed and declared cleansed, then uh, there is, it's appropriate to burst into song. During that cleansing process, during confession, music is not appropriate. During a, a communion meal, music is appropriate. And these, uh, the, the way that this uh, worship service in uh, 2 Chronicles 29 is set up uh, suggests those association associations. The other point that I want to make that was is of a theological, a more theological nature is in verse 25 here in 2 Chronicles 29, where we're told that David, it's not only David's command that the Levites sing and play musical instruments, but it also comes from the command of Gad the king's seer, that is King David's seer, and Nathan the prophet, which, whom we know from stories in 1 and 2 Samuel. 
these are, uh, it's not just David who is organizing the, the Levites in this way who instituted this system of worship, but it's also the work of seers and prophets. And that connects this order of worship with the orders of worship that are found uh, that, are, that were found in the tabernacle and temple in the sense that both of those orders of worship were brought, uh, uh, that were, they were derived from the pattern that a prophet saw on the mountain. Uh, Moses goes up onto the mountain and he sees uh, the pattern for the tabernacle, which he then brings down and makes the tabernacle according to the pattern that he saw on the mountain. Earthly worship, the earthly tabernacle, is a replication on earth of a heavenly tabernacle. According to that's in Exodus 25:9, 25:40, and Exodus 26:30, uh, worship is patterned according to a heavenly pattern, and the same thing is true of the temple. Uh, the same word is used uh, for pattern in First Chronicles 28:9 through 19. David David had received a pattern for the temple, which he then delivered over to Solomon, and Solomon was the one to actually build it. But David is functioning there as a prophet who receives the pattern and then passes it on so that it can be built. And here we're told that the musical ministry of the Levites, the musical worship that's been taking place at the, at the tabernacle of David during David's reign and then continues in the temple, is also a pattern of worship that is commanded by prophets. And I'm suggesting that that, would, that means that Nathan and Gad received uh, some revelation, they received some heavenly pattern for worship, and that the musical worship of the Levites uh, replicates that. Uh, the worship uh, at the tabernacle of David is made after the pattern of heaven in a different way than the worship of the tabernacle and the temple, but it is uh, also, like those, uh, patterned after the pattern on the mountain. I have a few observations uh, that I want to draw from this, but uh, I'm, I'm out of time, and it'll be a good introduction tomorrow to start with those observations. Uh, but are there any questions at this point? Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a talk from our audio collection titled, The Other Day the Music Died. If you'd like to hear the rest of the collection, you can purchase it at canonpress.com.